Pastor Mike make you, made you read all the way into that last chapter, so you can, you can thank him for that. And he wants to name a child. What was that one? Aholabama. That would be a great name for a kid. I've not, I've not run into one like that yet. That water spilled. Well, Father God, we just uh, thank you for this time together, Lord. I ask that you would open our hearts and minds to what, we, uh, what you have for us this morning, and that you would close our ears to any error that I may speak. Father, as we continue this series in Genesis, Lord, I ask that you would just um, help us as we study these things, as we study the life of Jacob, Father. Um, it is such a difficult life. It is so hard to understand why you chose him in some ways, and then why all these things keep happening to a person that you did choose. Why, if you bless a man, do you allow these kinds of things to happen to him? So, Father, I, <clears throat> I pray that you would just teach us, speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I was looking through this, <clears throat> and I was thinking about this because it's pretty common, or, well, somewhat common. Why do godly people produce wicked children? Why do godly people produce wicked children? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, if we train up a child in the way that they should go, when they're old, they don't depart from it. At least that's what we are taught. <clears throat> and then maybe I can dial that down just a little bit. Why do good and decent people sometimes have wicked children come from them? I mean, how is that a possible thing? And if you kind of flip that, because I've, I've kind of seen this too, I've seen kids come from really bad parents, like their parents are an absolute disaster, and some of them come out bad, and you would think that, but others come out great, and are some solid Christians. I mean, Joseph Stalin went to seminary. Presumably his parents raised him well. And then, you know, something bad happened. How does this happen? Well, it's a consistent theme in the book of Genesis and really throughout the Old Testament. And it's a big one in our passage today, you know, along with some other big themes. So we're going to look at that as we go through Genesis 35. So let's dig into this really big chapter, shall we? So open your Bibles if you have them. You can look up on the screen if you don't. The chapter 35 opens, I think, in a most interesting way once again. Here it goes. 35, 1 to 3. God says to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob says to his household and to all who were with him, Put away your foreign gods that, were among, that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to God, the God, to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Now, remember, <clears throat> God doesn't have lips. So it says, when he says, I spoke to Jacob, that's always kind of a thing of confusion. How does he speak to Jacob? Uh, people are confused by this. Likely not audibly. Now, it might be audibly. So, is it this internal voice, this internal leading 
that I say is a lot of times when I'm talking to people and they say, God spoke to me, I'm like, well, not really helpful language. He didn't really actually speak to you. He kind of leads you internally, right? He, he guides you, he directs you. There's this internal thing because the Holy Spirit's there. However, the Holy Spirit has not yet fallen on Jacob, on, on Jacob or anybody because Acts 2 hasn't happened, right? Uh, Pentecost hasn't happened, so maybe not that. So maybe there's an audible voice from heaven. Maybe an angel has come upon him. And maybe there's some kind of prophet who's fallen, but Jacob himself is a prophet, so maybe he also heard it in a dream. But we're actually not told here how the Lord speaks. So anybody who tells you how this happened is purely speculating. But once again, Jacob is told to leave. Now, the curious part is we're not told when Jacob is told to leave. And scholars are going to speculate on this, and, and, um, and uh, commentators are going to speculate on this. When does he do it? Because this comes right after Dinah. Remember what happens in the Dinah slaughter. Dinah is raped, and Simeon and Levi lead a slaughter. Now, here's why it's kind of important. If it happens right after the slaughter, then God has just spoken to Jacob, and when Jacob says, dude, clean yourselves up, guys, then it's probably all the blood and guts and all the stuff that happened from the slaughter. He's like, clean yourselves up, We're going to go there and get rid of these household idols. And those household idols may be the idols that they just took in the spoils of war, and they're burying them under the timbereth tree. However, if it's a little bit later, then it's just clean yourselves up. You've been in the fields. You've been doing whatever. Let's shave. Let's put on our finest. We are going to go to Bethel, and we are going to worship this one particular God. And, by the way, Put away your household idols. That's also interesting. Because they had household idols. They're worshiping other gods. Now, that's fascinating, isn't it? Now, either way, I think the latter is probably true, that these household gods are their gods. Why? Because when Jacob speaks, he says... I am going to the God who answers me in the day of my distress. Jacob is clarifying here the God. Who is the God? This God. Of all the gods we're worshiping, it's this God. This is the God that I am following. Remember, Jacob doesn't have a Bible. None of these guys have a Bible. The Bible hasn't come to be. There is not even a Pentateuch, or Pentateuch, right? There's none. This doesn't even exist. There's no five books. He's just learning about God, and this God has been speaking to him, but as far as he's concerned, there might be other gods, and he's learning about this God. But his family is following other gods, which may explain why his sons are doing the things that they're doing, right? May explain it. So he says, I'm going to go follow this God. And he says, this God answers me in the day of my distress, as in the other gods do not answer me in the day of my distress. Which is why he gives a tenth or a tithe of everything to him. Now, this is likely what the burying of the rings or etc. under the oak tree is, right? He tells everyone, let's bury all this stuff under the oak tree, right? That's what he's doing. What is he doing here? He says, I'm going to bury it. I'm going to hide all these rings under the oak tree, okay? 
Why does he do that? Well, remember before, he said, if you do these things, I will give a tenth to you. So this giving of a tenth, what we call a tithe, is before the law of Moses. It's an act of worship. And so he buries it under the oak tree. That's why all these different things, we're going to do this, we're going to give it to the Lord. There's no church at this particular time, and so this is what he does. Now, even today in the church, we give as an act of worship. I was in a church one time that put their offering boxes away. I found it kind of interesting. I was in a, you know, just anyway, it was just a church I was in. I think it was in Texas or something. And I went to it, and it was this huge church, and they had these offering boxes in the back. I think they had phone things that you could give with and all these different things, and it was way in the back. And they wanted to do it, and I remember they talked about giving, and um, they said, we don't really like to do this in the church. They had this little sign because it distracts from worship, and we don't really want to include that. And I talked to somebody else, and they said, we don't want to seem greedy. We want to put it in the back. Just give on your way out. Now, I found that kind of interesting because I was like, man, have you read the Bible? Have you really studied on this? Because in Scripture, that's not what giving is, right? Right? I mean, if you look at Abraham and if you look at Jacob, they're giving as an act of worship. And if you look then in, in, in the Pentateuch, right, later on in the law of Moses, this giving is an act of worship. That's what they do. They give a tithe, but the tithe is actually given as an act of worship. It's often, mis- it's often misunderstood in the New Testament church what the tithe is. But there's all these other things that they give as an act of worship. But in addition, Christians are called to do what? Or, sorry, Jews are called to do what? Give to the poor, give to the needy, give to, the, give to all sorts of people. They're supposed to be charitable. They're supposed to be caring about those in need. They have this whole system of giving. They're not supposed to be slaves to money. Now, that continues in the New Testament when Jesus says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He does not live for money, right? He lives for serving others. He talks about the tithe as well, and he talks about not being slaves to money. But then in Acts 2, the church begins to share, and they begin to do what? They're concerned not only about helping the poor and the needy and giving to one another and raising up <clears throat> the church, but they're also worried about ministering, right? The church is a, act, it's a, it's a thing of ministry, and they're going out into the world, and they're sharing the gospel. And then you look in 1 Corinthians, and they're helping the poor, and they're helping the church, and they're helping advance the gospel, and they're moving forward. Why? Because they're not slaves to money. And then you look in Timothy, and it says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not all evil, people mistake that, It says pos, which means all, but there it's meaning all kinds of evil. If it was the root of all evil, then Adam and Eve would have sinned in the garden because of a $10 bill or whatever it was, right? So you got to use your logic there. It's all kinds of evil, right? Uh, Don't get nonsensical. And so what it's saying here then is money is a useful tool it's not a helpful God, right? It's a useful tool. It's not a helpful God. And Jacob is learning that from the very beginning. And even we as Christians are called to live into this. Are you free from the love of money or do you serve it? That's why believers have always said the tithe, giving 10% isn't a command, but it's a good minimum for which 
from which to measure yourself. Sure, some are too poor to get there, to give 10%, but for most of us, if we aren't there, we're not, we're really kind of serving money, right? Ouch, I know, I'm sorry, I'm not here to make you feel good, I'm here for your soul. So free yourself from the love of money. Are you giving to the poor? Are you giving to the needy? Are you giving to the church? Are you giving to the kingdom? Or are you living for money? So from this preparation of a few things, a few things come in this story. So he prepares himself. The family cleans themselves up. They give to the Lord. Now he begins to move forward. Now once again, and this is the interesting part, as he's going forward, we see this thing. The Lord tells Jacob a thing. And then before another great event in his life, the Lord meets Jacob and speaks to him again in a lengthy format. Now, why doesn't he do it the first time? I don't know. But he meets him, and then as he goes on the road, like he takes him from one place, and then as Jacob's on the road, he talks to him there. So on the road, on the journey, as he's uncomfortable, now he speaks to him. And he says again and repeats the line that has been told to Abraham and to Isaac, and was already told to Jacob. He renames him the same thing, Israel, and he says this beautiful piece. It's awesome. It's incredible. I am going to bless you. Here's the thing, and this contrast isn't to be missed. Earlier, we had this horrible event with Simeon and Levi And probably his sons, the rest of his sons, participate in this slaughter and the looting. And they wipe out this whole town after they had just gotten this town circumcised, which means the town on some level is probably committing to Yahweh. Some are probably trying to fool the brothers, some are not, but whatever. They slaughter this town. They slaughter innocent people because of what the prince has done. And they victimize the women and they victimize the kids. Then... The Lord speaks to Jacob. Then (coughs) they give to the Lord. Then the Lord gives a covenant with Jacob. And then all of a sudden these bad things happen, and we have another bad contrast with his sons. Genesis 35, 22, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and laid with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Why? Well, Rachel was... Reuben's aunt. You would think that he would want to, that he loved his aunt. Remember, Rachel and Leah are kind of rivals here and there, but you would think that the rivalry wouldn't go to the kids. So, why does he sleep with Bilhah, the servant? Well, there's a couple reasons that this might happen. One, Rachel has just died, and so Reuben may be concerned that Jacob is going to put Bilhah into Rachel's place, and Bilhah is going to become the favorite wife. And so he defiles her so that his mother can become the favorite wife. That is one possibility. Another possibility is that Reuben, as the oldest son, is sleeping with Bilhah to claim his father's place. That's what Absalom does later on, trying to take David's place. He sleeps with all of David's concubines in front of all of Israel, right? Syria says all of Israel hears about it. 
That is what he may be doing. And then the third possibility is they just have an affair. So one, two, three. Could it be any of those possibilities? Which one is it? Hard to know. It's a shameless act, and he shames his father. It's hard to know why he does it. But the fact that it is definitely shocking for the readers after reading Genesis 35, 11 to 13. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. I'm going to give this land to your offspring after you. And then we read that his offspring does that. What are the readers thinking? Why do I want this offspring to inherit the land? Why do I want Simeon and Levi to inherit the land? Why in the world do I want Reuben to inherit the land? And we haven't even gotten to Judah yet. I mean, this is just getting worse and worse. And then we get to Joseph, and we're going to be thinking, oh, my goodness, is there anyone in this family that we want to inherit the land? I mean, how does a man then, and that's the other thing we begin to think, who is so blessed by God have such a wicked family, and then how does he have all these bad things happen to him? How could he, as a good person, raise murderous sons, and then Reuben, who's just gross. His father had children with this woman. It just keeps getting worse and worse. And so at some point we look at this guy and we go, seriously, Lord, this is the guy you picked? He's a disaster. And then I thought, wait a minute. Genesis 35, 10 and 11 says this, And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel. And the people reading this are in the wilderness, Israel. Well, they knew something about being a disaster. Deuteronomy 9, 4 to 8 says this, Do not say in your heart after the Lord after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, when he's talking about driving all the peoples out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. He's speaking to the entire nation of Israel. Whereas it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, Israel, that you're going to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you, that he may confirm the word of the Lord that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving this good land to possess because of your righteousness. He drove it in again and again and again. I'm not giving it to you because you're good. I'm not giving it to you because you're good. Once again, I'm not giving it to you, Israel, because you're good. And then he says why. Remember, and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious to the Lord. 
Even at Oreb you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to kill you, to wipe you off the face of the earth. And then he goes on all the way through chapter 9, and I'll let you read it. I won't read the whole thing. You did this wrong. You did this wrong. You did this. You did this. You did this. You did it. I was about to wipe you out here. I was about to wipe you out here. I was about to wipe you out here. And he lists everything that they did wrong. And when you compare that then to Jacob's life, you realize, oh, Israel, Israel. And then you read the entire rest of the Old Testament, and you're like, Israel, Israel. I get it now. Jacob's sons are disasters, and the tribes will come from his sons. Good people will come from bad, and bad people will come from good. Why? Well, we don't control our children. And we shouldn't try. We can't raise them. And I don't mean we can't control and we shouldn't try to control good behavior. But ultimately, we can't make our children good people. They belong to the Lord. We raise them up the best we can. We train them up in the ways of the Lord. And we hope that when they're old, they will not depart from it. But some are going to be Esau. Some are going to be Jacob. Some are going to be David. Some are going to be his brothers trembling in front of Goliath. Some are going to be good kings. Some are going to be wicked kings. And that's the story of Israel. We train them up, but they've ultimately got to answer to the Lord, give their faith or give their uh, lives to the Lord or reject the Lord. We raise them up and we train them. We pray and we hope for the best. And that's what reminds us that when we get to heaven, it's not our blood relatives that we'll be seeing. It's our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we are called to share the faith and the good news of Jesus. That's one of the reasons that Sunday morning is such an important thing. And Bible studies are such an important thing. That our time of fellowship is such an important thing because we are with the family of God. We're building those bonds with those who will be with us for eternity. We're drawing on the power of Jesus. We're united in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're strengthening ourselves for the rest of the world, but we are with the family of God. I had a pastor who used to tell me all the time, Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming. He was a professor in, in college, Dr. Barkley, sorry, at our seminary. Sunday's coming. It was a whole different way to look at the week. You see, <clears throat> right after Jacob has this tremendous honor of the Lord speaking to him, he walks out. And his wife gives birth to this beautiful baby boy. 
the pinnacle of his life, meeting the God of the universe who spoke to him and said, nations and kings are going to come from you. And right after that, his wife gives birth to Benjamin. How awesome is that? But she then dies. The love of his life dies right after that. This journey with God isn't always easy, is it? Why doesn't Jacob fall on his knees and curse the Lord? Do you think he wondered, what in the world, God? You just said I was blessed. What in the world, God? But here's the thing. In the midst of that birth, his wife almost curses that little boy. She names him son of my sorrow. Who does that? She names her baby boy son of my sorrow, son of my grief because I'm dying. What a thing to tag a baby boy with. Here's how we know that Jacob is grown. He holds that boy, and he says, no. Uh-uh. He says, son of my right hand, son of honor. Rachel was the love of my life. She was at my right hand. This boy is the son of honor. He's growing. He's learning, and even in the midst of his grief, he doesn't lose faith. That's why this chapter is here. He's the example we're called to follow. He did it without the internal leading of the Holy Spirit. We're called to follow, but we even have a greater advantage. We're united with Jesus Christ, and we're united with one another through the power of of the Holy Spirit. Amen.